making our way through the book of Acts, we are discovering the Holy Spirit. And we've seen in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit certainly at work in the lives of these two men, Cornelius, the centurion, the Gentile, or literally a a Gentile just means a non-Jew. At that time, there were two classifications of people in, in one sense, Jew and not Jew. That's pretty simple, right? On, off. Jew, not Jew. And Cornelius fell into the not Jew category. And up until this time, all the people that are responding to the preaching, all the people that are responding to the apostles' message, they're all Jewish. So Pentecost, who's getting saved at the day of Pentecost? It's all Jewish people. And then as the message continues to spread, it does go to the Samaritans, and they're at least still part Jewish. So Acts chapter 10 is this radical chapter that shows that the, the message of Jesus going to the Gentiles and God's acceptance of them. And now for us, for many of us, for most of us, there's probably some Jewish folks in here, but for most of us, this is really good news. Because the Jews at that time considered the Gentiles as just, you know, God needs something to stoke the fires of hell with. That's, you think I'm kidding. A Jewish person would begin their day by thanking God that they were not a Gentile. You know, this was their God, and, and they took ownership of this God, and this God was certainly not interested in anybody that wasn't Jewish, because he was the God of the Jews. And he is the God of the Jews, and that's true, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. I'm getting ahead of, you see, you've made me get ahead of myself now. This man, Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, leads a hundred troops. Peter, on the other side, he's in Joppa, 32 miles to the south. In one sense, these guys are fairly close together. Only 32 miles separates them. But in another sense, they couldn't be farther apart. Culture separates them. Jew and Gentile. And God is doing the unthinkable, the amazing. He's bringing them together. And that's the real mystery of the church, is that it's not just Jewish or, or Gentile, it's Jew and Gentile. It's Jew and non-Jew. It's these cultures. It's, it's black, it's white, it's old, it's young, it, it's Middle Eastern. It's the whole thing. It's everybody is encapsulated under this word, this name called the church. The church isn't the building. You know that. The church is people. And I love the diversity in the body of Christ. But that didn't come without a price and that didn't come, come without some re-education for the apostle Peter. Cornelius has a dream while he's praying, and Cornelius sees this vision about sending men to Joppa to Peter. And then Peter has a dream, and he sees the blanket come down, the sheet come down with all these different animals on it, clean and unclean. And God says, don't call common that which I have made clean. And so Peter's kind of chugging this vision through. What does that mean? You know, based on their food laws, and there were certain things they just didn't eat, and certain ways they just couldn't prepare their food before they eat it because it would be unkosher. So now he sees this vision of all these different clean and unclean animals all together on this blanket. The blanket's taken back up into heaven and Peter's trying to figure out what in the world that's all about. Just as he's thinking about this dream, here's a knock on the door. And it's these men that have been sent from Cornelius, from the centurion, down to tell Peter, hey, there's this guy named Cornelius. You don't know him, but he's a centurion and he lives up in Caesarea, which is 32 miles away. And God instructed him to tell you to come to him. And so God then speaks to Peter and says, Peter, go. 
go with him to this Gentile's house. Now that's radical, and you'll see why as we go through. So we pick up our story. They've headed out to, uh, as a group, 10 of them all together. They've headed out from Joppa to Caesarea, and verse 24 is where we pick up. And the following day, they, this group of 10 people, entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, lifting him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So stop right there. Peter shows up with this little entourage, the three guys that had come from Caesarea to Joppa. And then Peter says in chapter 11 that he had six guys with him. So Peter, that's one, plus the six that were with him, that that he took with him, that's seven, plus the three that had come down from Cornelius, that's ten. So that's how I get that number. And they uh, they go back up to uh, Caesarea and they enter Cornelius' house and they find that Cornelius has been waiting for them. Now, he had no idea. He sends his servants off. Peter could have said, no, not going. But it's sort of like this faith that Cornelius exercises that God is in this. And God is going to bring him. Not only that, not only is Cornelius there waiting for by himself, but look who else is there. It says he had called together his relatives and close friends. Now, in some ways, for this guy Cornelius, remember, he's wealthy. He's a centurion. He makes 17 times more money than the average foot soldier. So he's wealthy, and we know from history that the centurions were powerful, were well-respected socially. So this group of people that's gathered is in some ways probably a who's who of Caesarea. And I can only imagine the risk maybe that was taken by, by this centurion to call these people together. You know how that feels, right? I mean, you know how it feels to invite someone to church? And then they come and they go, eh, not really interested. And you know how you feel like rejected and like, oh, you know, you've shared what's exciting to you. And that's what Cornelius is doing. He is so excited and so anticipating about what God is doing and the prayers that are being answered that he just has to share it with his friends. I mean, he can't hold it back. He's got to tell everybody, you guys need to hear what this apostle is going to say. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is the story of Samaria being routed by the the Syrians. And hang with me here. This is a really important story. At that point in history, you know, the way you would be uh, conquered in your city is they would just basically surround your city and starve you out till you ran out of food. And then you would start, they would resort to uh, eating their children and, and horrible stuff like that. That's actually what they did just to survive until all the food was gone and you either starved to death or you gave yourself up. And so the lepers are sitting outside the, the walls of the city and everybody's starving. And they look at each other like, what are we doing here? You know, we're going to die if we stay here. Or we could give ourselves up to the enemy and they'll either be merciful to us and we'll be able to get something to eat or they'll kill us. So either way, we're dead, potentially. There's only one hope and that's if we could surrender and then maybe we'll live So let's go for it. So they go out to surrender to the enemy camp. But what's happened in the meantime, God has scattered the enemy. Like the enemy camp had fled. They left their tents. They left everything, all their food, all their provisions. So these four lepers go out to the camp and everybody's gone and all this food is there. So they start doing what you and I would do. They start chowing down. 
I mean, they are going to town with all this food. Just, oh, just pass me a chicken leg. This is great. I mean, I'll get some more. And they're just having this, this feast. And then one of the guys remembers that there's people starving in the city. And they start to feel guilty. And they say, wait, wait a second. It's not right that we should be chowing down and feasting on all this good food while just down the road, there's a whole city that's in starvation that doesn't know the army's gone. How can we keep this to ourselves? And for me, that passage has been, I guess, the driving force behind me and my personal evangelism in my life. Like, I have just been so blessed and so filled by the Word of God. And I think as I come into church on Sunday, how, how do we keep this to ourselves? If you've been blessed and you're full and you're chowing down on the good things of God and the blessings of God, how do you keep that to yourself? When people out there are starving for truth, they're starving for love, they're starving for acceptance, they're starving for forgiveness, how can you keep it to yourself? And I think it's a great parable, a great analogy. Cornelius evidently feels this way. He's waiting and he's called together his relatives and his friends. And as Peter comes in, he sees the house is full. Peter is going to preach to a packed house. This is every fisherman's dream to fish in a stock pond. I mean, they're all there waiting. One other little note that's interesting as they greet each other. What's the centurion do? Does he make Peter bow down to him? He falls at Peter's feet. Isn't that, I mean, think about that. This is a decorated, professional, military, high social status, wealthy soldier. And he sees Peter. And he bows down at his feet. The military bowing down to the spiritual man. And Peter, also humble, says, hey, wait a second, get up. You and I, man, we're, we're cut out of the same, we're both human beings. Don't bow down to me. I'm not the one you bow down to. So I just like that little interchange that you notice in there. Verse 28 says, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to want of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Peter just shares with them what they already knew, what Peter knew, that, hey, according to our traditions, according to our customs as Jews, I shouldn't be here. You ever been in a place like that? I'm not saying for sinful reasons. Like, there's some places I've been, and I go, I shouldn't be here. This is bad news being here. But sometimes you're in a place where you go, what am I doing here? How did I get here? Because Peter says, we don't have dealings. This is sort of, if I'm remembering correctly, this is sort of what the woman at the well says when Jesus comes to her. How is it that you, a Jewish man, are talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Like, we shouldn't be talking. Like, culturally, we're crossing some big lines here. And Peter recognizes that I'm crossing some big lines. And you can imagine in our own country during the days of segregation, there were those that crossed those lines. And what happened to them? They got a huge... A burden of conviction on them for outside persecution on them. I mean, they took a beating because of that, and sometimes literally for crossing lines. Anybody who's going to take things in a new direction is going to have to cross some lines. And that's what we see. It's going to take some courage, and Peter shows that courage, but not just because it's what he's deciding to do. What's he say here? God has shown me hey, I'm understanding the blanket thing. I'm understanding the clean and unclean animal thing. It's not about food necessarily. 
It is to some degree because it was food that kept these cultures apart. But it's about people. It's about people. He says, God has shown me. What's the last thing God has shown you? When's the last time you could say, I used to think, but God has shown me. I used to think marriage was this. Or I used to think work was about that. I used to think life was about this. But God has shown me. Is God teaching you? I mean, are you learning from God? Sometimes people just come and they sit and they agree and they go out and they never learn anything. You've been sitting in church for 30 years and you've still not really learned it. You've not said, you know, God has shown me and then acted on that. Peter didn't just say, well, God showed me, but I'm not ready to accept it yet. God has shown me that I should not call, cannot call any man common or unclean. And then he acted on that. He went to the house of the Gentile man. And he tells him that. He said, I came kicking and screaming. Because sometimes that's how we obey God, right? God, I, I obeyed you, but I don't like it. When God shows it to you, the fight is over. You go, oh, now I see it. You know, the, I should have had a V8 moment. Oh, how could I have missed that? And you read his word and he speaks to you and you wow, that has, I can't tell, the things in my life the truths that I hold most dearly are those truths when I've been just sitting down reading my Bible and I read that passage and I go, that's really troubling. I've shared it with you before. I'll share it again. I, I share it pretty often. One of the most radical truths, just by way of example in my own life. I remember reading in the Gospel of Luke where God talks about grace and being a God that he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. And I thought, whoa, that challenges me kind of the unthankful. No, the unthankful, I want them to get what they deserve because they're ungrateful and I ain't helping them. I ain't doing nothing kind for them. But I, I got this window into God's grace and it says, if you want to be my children, you have to take on my behavior. And my behavior is, is that I'm kind to the unthankful and the evil. And I said, oh God, that's a, that's kind of heavy. And it, but it impacted me. And I said, well, I should be kind to people that are evil and people that are unthankful. Why? Because God is. And my reward, you know, sometimes then you're kind to a person and they treat you like dirt, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, and you go, that's the last time I'm being kind to an unthankful or an evil person. But your reward isn't from that person. God says, and your reward is in heaven. God sees it. God says, I will take care of you when you do that stuff. And so that was just something, a little example, one of many in my life where God showed me something and I said, wow, I got to respond to that. And that's what happens to Peter. His mind is being reprogrammed and his life is going to be reprogrammed because of this. Therefore, he says, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. And look what he says. As soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? Now, they he had been told by these guys that came from Cornelius that, uh, he had some words. Look back at verse 22. They say uh, that Cornelius had instructed them, uh, that Cornelius had been instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So Peter knew that he had something to say to them, but he's not sure exactly what. Remember, he's been invited places for healings. You know, Tabitha, he raises her from the dead. He's doing these miracles. He may even be thinking about the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8 that Jesus healed, where the centurion comes and bows down and says, my servant is sick, can you heal him? And 
you don't even have to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. And Jesus comments on his faith and, and the centurion's servant gets healed. And so maybe Peter thinks he's going there. Maybe somebody needs healing. Because I'll tell you what he doesn't expect. Even though he's entered the house of non-Jews, I don't think he expects what's coming. I don't think he's expecting, anticipating God to accept them on the same level he's accepted the apostles and all the Jews. So he says, hey, for what reason have you sent for me? Who's sick? Where's the dead body? You know, let's do this and then I can get out of here. That's not what he says, not what happens. Verse 30, so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. Just recounts the story. At the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. And I noticed it's singular. Uh, that doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean anything. But I wonder, I have to wonder in my heart, is there a specific prayer that Cornelius has been praying? Maybe he's feeling, you know, like I'm a God-fearer. I, I, you know, I sort of, I give alms. I, I pray with the t- at the times the Jews pray. I do these things, but I still feel like there's something missing. I still feel like I'm not accepted by the God of the Jews. Maybe he's praying that. Like, God, I just want to be accepted. I want to feel accepted by you because as a Gentile, he would have still been an outsider in terms of the God of the Jews. He wouldn't have been allowed in certain places where the Jews went, wouldn't have been allowed to partake and participate in some of their events. So maybe still feeling like an outsider, maybe feeling like, you know, God, I just still feel, I just want to know that I'm accepted by you. Could be. I don't know for sure. Maybe he was praying about, Lord, you know, God, I give these alms, I help people, I do these prayers at the right times in the right way. I have this ritual, this, this religious routine that I go through, but I'm still dealing with the guilt of bloodshed. I mean, you know the lives I've taken on the battlefield. You know the people that I've disciplined, the hurt that I've inflicted. How do I deal with that guilt? Maybe he's praying that kind of prayer. Again, I can't say for sure, but it's his prayer that's heard, and God responds as your prayer has been heard, Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. I see what you're doing, God says. And he said to Cornelius, send therefore to Joppa, call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he'll speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, this is, I love this line. We are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And there they are, like, blink, blink, just looking at like, okay, you're on. I mean, this is every preacher's dream. I mean, this is, again, like, you know, Peter's called to be a fisher of men, and God has stocked the pond, and they're all starving. You just put your hook in, and you get a catch. And this is every preacher's dream. Peter's looking at all these people around, you know, there's military people, there's aristocrats, and they're all, their families, and everybody's there. How many people? We don't know. But the house is packed. And they all say, Peter, we are all present before who? Before God. That's a greater recognition than many people today have. You came in to be present not before a preacher, not to hear the words of a pastor. But I pray that in your anticipation, you came to church saying, we want to hear from God. I desperately need a word from God today. And then you came prepared, hungry, ready, Part of the work is on my side, to prepare, to be ready in season, out of season. And Peter didn't have any time to prepare a sermon. 
You know, he's just called to, to go there. And so he goes and he didn't prepare something specifically. He's, he lived prepared. And he shows up and they're all going, we want to hear from God. It's like, really? I mean, because so many times we got to like nail people down to try to talk to them about Jesus. Like they're running away as fast. We got to chase them. To t- Let me just tell you. No, sorry, got to go. Not interested. No time for that. And then when you meet that person who God has already prepared and you just start to share and their heart's already with it. It's like, this is great. This is, I think, that fourth soil that Jesus talks about. That soil of the heart that's already ready to hear. And when the seed gets cast, it lands on that fertile ground and begins to bear fruit. We're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. That's one way to really get something out of the Word of God. That's one way to really grow is recognizing whose word this is that we're talking about. All right, Peter, you're on. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth. He was good at doing that, wasn't he? Peter Peter would love to open his mouth. Sometimes uh, in his past, some bad things had come out, but uh, or so, some incorrect things. But now he gets this chance and he begins to preach. And by the way, he doesn't get to finish his sermon. He just begins it. And he starts out with, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He says, you want to hear from God? You want to learn something about God? The first thing I'm going to tell you, I'm going to start my sermon with this truth about God. God does not play favorites. As he's looking at this room of Gentiles, knowing in his heart that he had played favorites in the past, he just says to the group, here's what I've learned about God. And I just learned it two days ago. I mean, it's all over the Old Testament, all over the book of Isaiah. But I'm just getting this, that God shows no favoritism. Isn't that a great truth? I mean, just think about what that truth says. Because what if God was just the God of the Jews? Where would the hope be for us? Where would the hope be for you forever being accepted by a God who only loved Jews? Well, for them, that's great. But for us, there's no hope. See, we're so accustomed in America with this understanding of God being the God of all. Paul talks about this in later on in the book of Acts as he's preaching. He says that they, basically God has from one blood created all nations. We all have one common ancestor, Adam and Eve. And every human being created in the image of God descended from that common ancestor. So why would God not love everybody? Why would God not love the whole world? We have one common ancestry. We may have lots of different skin colors and lots of different economic situations and live all over this big, giant planet Earth. But there are some common things that bind us together, and that's part of what's in our founding documents. We believe that all men are created equal. And that's a truth because we're all created in the image of God. And so Peter says, when it comes to God, he doesn't show conditional love. He shows unconditional love. He's not afraid to associate with this group or that group. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't go, well, I, I really like these people. I don't really like those people over there. They're not, I'm not really into what they're into, so I'm going to stick with these people over here. And we understand that about God. The problem is we are so full of showing favoritism. We want to hang out with wealthy people. We want to hang out with popular people. We want to hang out with, you know, this or that person, this group or that group. And God tells me one of the, another truth that was impacting to me. Romans chapter 12, God says, associate with the humble. Because he does. Jesus didn't come born into a palace, hanging out with just the aristocracy, the rich, the wealthy. He was born poor. 
and largely over the course of history, the message that has been really impacting to the poor. He made to be rich in faith. That's what James tells us. And so we like to associate with popular. We show favoritism. But God says, no, I want you to associate with the humble and the popular. They all need the Lord. They all need me, Jesus says. No partiality. But in every nation, look at this, but verse 35, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Wherever you've come from, whatever your background, whatever you're into, whatever color your skin, whatever age, whatever nation, doesn't matter. Heaven is filled with people from every nation. And God, wherever you're from, you, listen to me saying it to you this morning, on behalf of God, as his ambassador, I say to you, whoever you are this morning, you can be accepted by God. And that is tremendous news because there's a lot of people on this earth who don't want to have anything to do with you. Isn't that true? For some of you, I know that's true. Your families have rejected you. You don't fit in here. You don't fit in there. And God says, I got room for you. And I'm not ashamed of you. I love you unconditionally. But, but God, my skin color, but God, my, my this, my, doesn't matter to me. I can accept you. I will accept you. Verse 36, he continues his sermon, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. That's where peace comes from. He is Lord of who? All. See these encompassing, these inclusive words, every nation, whoever, all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he starts out with his baptism who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, goes on to his ministry. And we are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Talks about his crucifixion. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, his resurrection, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So God didn't show himself to everybody. Jesus didn't show himself to everybody after he rose from the dead, but God had selected groups of people that he would reveal himself to. He revealed himself to the apostles. He revealed himself, Paul tells us, to 500 people at one time. We don't know where or how that happened. but So there's lots of people that saw Jesus alive. And they were then going to be the ones that would tell others about it, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. They had that meal on the beach together. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, here's that inclusive word again, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Whoever believes doesn't say whoever has the right rituals practiced at the right time in the right way. See, this is what we talked about. Cornelius went through and did a lot of these good religious things. So did the Pharisees. They prayed. They fasted. They gave alms, just like Cornelius did. He fasted. He prayed. He gave alms. Those things don't save a person. And I think Cornelius has gotten to the point where he's realized that although he does these things, there's still something missing in his life. Or none of those things deal with the guilt he feels from what he's done. And so Peter says, 
whoever believes in Him will receive remission of the forgiveness of sins. All of a sudden, the meeting changes. Watch what happens next. While Peter was still speaking these words, he just got to this issue of forgiveness. And he's still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I mean, this is huge. This is, as many have said, the, the Gentile Pentecost. So Peter's still preaching. Look, if you ever want to interrupt my sermon because the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you want to be saved, then feel free to do so. I would welcome it. I'm in the middle of preaching this and go, I want that. I need that forgiveness of sins. I mean, we would all stop and applaud right then. I mean, we would like, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Like, that would be great. This is, again, this is a preacher's dream. There's no invitation. There's no plea for being saved. He's just preaching. And their heart, they're so anticipated, they're so ready. Whatever it is Cornelius has been chugging through in his mind, in his spirit, whatever's not been settled, he hears about remission of sins. He hears about forgiveness. And that is what I know I need. And the interesting thing about the world we live in, there are hundreds and thousands and possibly millions of people that deal with their own guilt and shame and have no way, the world gives you no way to deal with that. The world says to you, take a pill and hope it goes away. Or at least let's mask it for a while. I think this is the crisis of our generation. I think this is the crisis of our world. We all know inherently, interiorly, that we've done a lot of bad stuff. And I think we all know that although we try to hold to this external identity of being good people, I think when you get alone and you're honest with yourself, you know that being a good person is about more than just doing some good things here and there. I think deeply inside we know we've done wrong. And when you question a person about that, they're usually, they're willing to admit it. In every situation, you've always done exactly what's right toward another person. You've always loved your neighbor as yourself. You've always done that, really? You've never hurt anybody? You've never said something hurtful? You've never done something hurtful? You never cheated someone? Stole something? Lied? You've never done... And usually people, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But there's such a wall up, such a protective wall up that it takes a little work to get a person to break down that wall to be honest about who they are, about what they've done. But when a person gets there on their own, like I did, like maybe some of you did, it was me. I recognized God stopped me in my tracks in the middle of my sin and said, Steve, what are you doing? I said, I don't know, God. What am I doing? And I knew I'm not a good person. There's some parts of me that I would rather not talk about. There's some things I think that I would never want to confess. I'm ashamed of them. Even as a Christian, you go, where'd that come from? Get out, you know, get behind me, Satan. That's not from you, God. That's, I don't like that thought. We deal with that, but nobody wants to be honest about it. But the question is then, let's, let's say you come to that realization in your life that you've got you morally, ethically, you've, you've done some wrong things. What do you do with that? Well, I try to just counter it by doing some good things. I try to make it go away. But you realize you can't. The average person in the world really has no way to deal with any closure for their moral or ethical law-breaking. They don't know how to deal with it. Like if you break the law, if you get a speeding ticket, you have a way to close that out, right? You pay the fine. And it brings it to closure. And then you are restored back to righteousness, right? You've, you've paid the penalty. You've done what's right. And you're restored. What do you do spiritually? 
And how do you do that on a spiritual level? How do you do that ethically, morally? You try to do it, you try to pay it back somehow, but you can't. You can't unscramble an egg. You can't unhurt the person that you've hurt. And so people live trying to mask that with drugs or alcohol or success or ambition or workaholism or religion. And all these things try to mask that deep inner need that you know you have for forgiveness of sins. And when they hear that offer, I think Cornelius is probably the first in line, don't you? That, that is what I've been looking for. And as soon as he repents in his heart, he hears that message, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Look at that. He's still speaking. The sermon is interrupted. The Holy Spirit falls upon those who heard the word. And it was something outward. It was something, look at verse 46, that they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. It was very unmistakably obvious what was happening. Otherwise, they would have doubted it. It was exactly the same as what happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost, to those 120 disciples waiting in the upper room when God poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. So not only are the Gentiles accepted by God, but they're accepted on the same level as the apostles and the other disciples. That's radical. And notice this. Did Peter say, well, you know, you really better get your act cleaned up first. And in that day, you could become a Jew to be accepted by God. So one thing they could have done was, well, if you change first, if you kind of become a Jew, you go through the circumcision thing, you go through those ritual things, then you can become a Jew and then God can love you. And this is what's radical. They didn't have to do anything. Do you see that? They just believed. And the Spirit of God fell upon them. And those of the circumcision, those of the circumcision are the Jews that were there who believed. They were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They were blown away because it was absolutely irrevocable, unarguable evidence that God was accepting Gentiles into the kingdom with full and complete status, not as second-class citizens, not as lower than the Jews, on complete equal ground with the Jews. They couldn't argue with it. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered and said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? I mean, they're looking around the room. These guys are, are magnifying God, glorifying God, and Peter's like, yeah, I guess we should baptize them. Now, there is a teaching, interestingly, and some of you may have encountered this, called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. There are those that believe that you are not saved until you've been baptized in water. And those of this denomination, if you get saved, like let's say you're praying in your room at 3 a.m., wake up out of your sleep, and all of a sudden you're convicted of your sins, you repent and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You have to call him at 3 a.m., and say, hey, I've repented of my sins, and I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. They'll come over to your house at 3 a.m. and baptize you in your bathtub or somewhere, because if you get up next morning and you go to work, and you get hit by a car and are killed, you're not saved because you haven't been baptized. It's Jesus plus baptism. And so I have had this conversation many, many times, and some will say, well, we go through the argument and say, well, show me an example. What can you point to? Because Peter said in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's another story. That's a, a misunderstanding of the Greek. So I say, okay, let's talk about Cornelius and his household. Because do you think he was saved when the Holy Spirit fell upon him? 
Do you think the Holy Spirit fell upon him before he was baptized in water? Do you think his water baptism came after he was already saved? Now again, you go back to Pentecost and you see a different scenario. So God doesn't just work in one way. Sometimes, I think it was the Samaritans, people are baptized in water and then later on, they're filled with the Spirit. But these people, they're filled with the Spirit and then later on, they're, they're baptized in water. So the point is that you're water baptized, not for your salvation, and that you're filled with the Spirit. Whatever order that happens in, I could care less. But that they both are part of your life. Because Peter says, well, you know, I guess we should uh, go ahead and baptize them because God's accepted them. God's accepted them, shouldn't we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. He commands, he tells them, all right, that's it. You guys, you're saved, so you're going to have to be baptized. He, interestingly, he doesn't say, well, you know, you're filled with the Spirit. Uh, don't, baptism's not really important. Don't worry about it. Does he say that? He says, you're saved. Now you need to give the public demonstration, the symbolism of being buried with Christ and raised to live in newness of life. You're saved, now be baptized. Because I think there's a sense in which we can take baptism too seriously in that, well, you're not saved unless you're baptized. And I think in rejection of that, sometimes we can take it too lightly. Well, baptism doesn't really matter as long as I'm saved. But I think that there's a tension of figuring out that both of them are important in the life of a believer. You can look back on that baptism as that time when you made that public expression of faith in front of witnesses, in front of people, I usually tell people, uh, let's say you're, you're dating someone, you're, maybe you're engaged and say, well, you know what, um, when are we going to get married? And the fiance says, well, you know, uh, we can get married, but let's not do it publicly. Well, what do you mean? I don't want anybody to know. How fast do you think that guy would be out the door? What do you mean you don't want anybody to know? I mean, she's ready to declare it to the whole world. But he's going, I want to keep it between me and you. Well, baptism is that time where you go, you know, if you don't want to get baptized, you're like, well, I, I love Jesus, but I don't want people to know. Jesus, let's just keep it between me and you. But if you love someone, you're like, I want the world to know. I want everybody to know my relationship with Jesus. And so that's part of what baptism does is it, it's an outward declaration. And final word here, then they asked him to stay a few days. So amazing, Peter's sermon cut off. They're filled with the Spirit. He baptizes them. And they ask him, Peter, just, we don't want you to go. Can you keep preaching to us? Can you keep, this is music in the ears of a pastor. Can you keep talking to us about this like I'm doing this morning? Just go on and on and on. For Peter to stay, that means they're going to have to eat together. You see that? That means they're going to have to share some meals unless they're going to starve Peter to death. So the lines have been crossed. And I think you and I are very thankful that uh, we learn this very important truth about God, that we are fully accepted, and he accepts you, listen, just as you are. Do you see that in this passage? Just as you are. He doesn't expect you to, to become something before he'll accept you. He'll accept you right where you are, just as you are. Now, he won't leave you the same, right? You know that. He comes into your life and begins to change things. But today, if this message is impacting you, and you didn't interrupt my sermon... It would have been cool if you did. <laughs>